Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Hilda Perez Alvarado, who's recently been named the CEO of our sponsor JLL's Hotels and Hospitality Group in the Americas. Hilda is also the head of their global hotel desk, which means that she has the bird's eye perch thinking about capital flows into the hotel business globally. For me, this was a blast of a conversation. Several things to listen for. First, we were able to talk throughout the conversation about both the global nature of the hospitality business, as well as the very emotional and personal connection that people have to this corner of the real estate business. Both consumers and investors have a different, deeper connection to the hospitality sectors than other parts of the real estate business. Second, all sectors of real estate are constantly moving and evolving, particularly around the consumer. And as often the case, the hospitality business leads the way in terms of that customer-centric approach. Third, as we always do in Leading Voices, we spoke about Hilda's career story and pathway to leadership. In her case, from growing up in Costa Rica and indeed all over the world, to the Cornell Hotel School, to consulting, and then into the transaction world, and now global leadership at JLL. Hilda is a compelling leader and absolutely passionate about the hospitality business. I want to thank JLL for sponsoring the podcast. For more information on JLL and on Leading Voices, go to www.jll.com voices. This month, we're having back-to-back interviews in the hospitality sector. Today's conversation with Hilda will be followed up by an interview with Ed Walter, now CEO at the Urban Land Institute and previously the CEO at Host Hotels and Resorts. We're always looking for feedback and ideas for the podcast. Please take a few minutes and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and feel free to send guest suggestions and ideas for the podcast to me at my day job at Terra Search Partners. My email is matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you'll enjoy the conversation with Hilda. Hilda, thanks for being a guest on Leading Voices to talk both about your career journey as well as the opportunity and challenges and evolution in the market in the hospitality sector. And I'm thrilled to have the conversation today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So you're the COO of JLL's Hospitality Group, so that our listeners will understand the breadth of your role and just get a kind of perspective to start the conversation Tell us a little bit about your job, your team, and the various services that you provide. And because you're at JLL, my headline wants to be capital flows and investments, but I think it's broader than just that, if just is the right word. So kind of give us an overview if you can. Absolutely. So I was um, uh, nominated deputy CEO for the hotels and hospitality groups in the Americas. I will be assuming the role of uh, chief executive officer later this year, um, again, for the America's business. In addition to that, I also wear another hat, which is the head of the Global Hotel Desk. And that group, our main job is to do cross-border investment sales in any of the major global regions, so Americas, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific. As it relates to what we do as a business, we only traffic hotels. So we do everything that is related to hotel and hospitality investment, from sales to financing to advisory and asset management. And how much of the globe of the business for JLL is global and how much is domestic, just to get a sense of the balance of its work? So we're structured slightly different than, different than the rest of the JLL firm. Our business is structured globally. So if you look at our, our P&L, our, our business, I would say that probably 50% of our overall 
revenues are coming from the Americans and uh, Europe and Asia Pacific account for the rest of the business. So, you know, it is truly global integrated, one team, uh, one voice, and we all report up to a global CEO. Uh-huh. And I'm guessing that that reflects the nature of the hospitality business more than it might other sectors of commercial real estate. M- maybe talk a little bit about the hospitality business being truly international. Maybe other sectors of real estate are more domestic with some exceptions, but any, any thoughts about that? Yes, we are, um, I would say, one of the most global uh, industries there are. And as it relates to real estate, you know, what drives our business is travel and tourism. So travel and tourism is the world's largest uh, sector. It is obviously very global. If you look at our client base, they're also very global in nature, whether it's the brands like Marriott, Accor, Hilton, Hyatt. Uh, to some of our biggest investors, which happen to be sovereign wealth funds, so you know the largest governments around the world, to to private equity. And when investors are looking to invest in hospitality, you know you have those that are very regional or local focused, but you also have those that have a you know very prestigious portfolio of assets located in the major global gateway markets. So. As it relates to our business and in, in, in real estate, we are, in fact, the most global there is as it relates to hotels and hospitality. And it all has to do with the core business, which is uh, the consumer at the end of the day is a global traveler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so one other comment before we talk about you and then get back to what, what hospitality means these days. But just is there a theme in the hospitality business or a major change and direction that you see that might kind of per- pervade this conversation a little bit? Listen, I think hotels are always evolving. At the end of the day, as we were saying at the onset of the, of the conversation, what drives our business is the customer. And, you know, hotels are all about experience. A lot of the rest, you know, other hospitality or, or other real estate classes, you know, whether it's office, residential, et cetera, they're all converging into our space. So in terms of Changes that, you know, we're expecting to see, I would say, definitely becoming more global, more than it already is. And it's all about reputation. So, you know, reputational economy, I know it's something that people are just starting to focus on. We've always focused on that in the hotel business. And it's interesting, and I think you put your finger on one of the major trends, which is all of real estate has become much more customer-focused, and we used to think the customer meant the company who was leasing, say, the office space. But now in the office building business, it's about who the workers are for the client, and are they going to show up to work every day and be excited to work in that building? That's right. And it's also, you know, kind of the temporary nature of how we're using space nowadays, right? So hospitality, we sell rooms on a nightly basis. That's how we, you know, uh, monetize our space. And if you look at something like WeWorks or, you know, some of the other trendsetters in office, they're also thinking about more temporary solutions for how to use space, right? So again, same thing with uh, with residential and emergency family, it's all converging into a more, more rapid uh, usage, usage of space, and it's all about experiences. And it's interesting, and your industry's been there for a long time, so you're ahead of the curve, or your sector's ahead of the curve in having to know how to respond to those things. 
No, that's right. But I think what it means to us is that there's more competition, there's more innovation, and right. competition is always good, right? It keeps us in our toes. Absolutely. So let's come back to all this. We'll put a pin in the conversation about what's going on in the hospitality business. And uh, let's talk about you and your career and your pathway and how you got here. Our podcast is all about careers and career journeys and leadership and how people got there. Sure. So I've, um, you know, I've always been a global citizen. I was born in Costa Rica. Uh, soon after I was born, my parents actually moved to Europe and we had a stint in North Africa. We moved back to Costa Rica and, uh, you know, my parents being the global nomads that they are and the academic, um, very heavy academics, um, they went to go get their PhD in the U.S. when I was uh, 13 years old. So we moved to the U.S. I did my high school in West Lafayette, Indiana, which was uh, quite the experience. And then from then on, I moved to, to Cornell to pursue my career. Uh, to be honest, I grew up in hotels. So my grandmother uh, on my mother's side uh, was a hotel owner and a restaurant owner. My mother um, studied tourism uh, to begin with. She ended up getting her PhD in history. And my dad is a uh, mathematician and an economist. So I think I am a, a perfect byproduct of both of their careers. I must confess that I went to Cornell to study biochemistry, which is what I wanted to pursue. Um, and then within a week, I thought that this was going to be a very lonely career if I pursued biochemistry. And so I went back to my roots and I went to the world's best hotel school. So that's, you know, kind of my story there. My passion is uh, travel and tourism. I love to travel. I love international. I love global. And so I I think I have the perfect job there is. So, you know, it doesn't seem like work. I feel like I'm playing all day long. So I'm very blessed Yeah. Um, to have the career that I absolutely, I couldn't have dreamed it any better. One question about that. One of the challenges of managing a career like yours is managing different time zones and manage constant air air travel. When it's as delightful as it as you're describing, that helps, but that's still a brutal routine. It is if you don't like it. I love traveling. You know, I still get a thrill when the plane's taking off. <laughs> I love arriving to new places, and because my travel is global. Right. You know, every place is different, right? So you're, all your senses are on when you arrive in the Middle East and it's, you know, 110 degrees and you're speaking Arabic and you're hearing, you know, the, the call to prayer in the background. So when you land in Hong Kong and it's chaotic and, you know, you're dealing with completely different culture to, you know, same thing in, in Europe. And, you know, earlier this week I was in the Canadian Rockies and yesterday I was in Chicago. So oh my God. The beauty of it is that it's all different. So this is off the track of the conversation, but just the last place you went that surprised you and delighted you? Home. (laughs) (laughs) How about that? Home. Home is the last place that I went to, and I was very delighted to be here. Um, But no, I can't can't pick. I don't have favorites. I love love every corner of Earth, Um, and it, it all has to do with the people, you know, Right. Uh, when you work in hospitality, the you know our clients, our our employees, you know we're all hotelies. We're ingrained hotelies, and there's just a very different treatment and a very different outlook in life. It's all about service. So you switched to the hotel school after a week or two in in 
biology. <laughs> um, and it is the best hotel school in the world. So maybe you get to experience the ideas germinating very early on and your classmates, you progress through your careers together. I did. You know, it kind of brought it all into perspective. So as I said, I, I, I grew up in four different continents. You know, when I lived in Costa Rica, I actually did live in a hotel for a little while. My, my mother was the general manager of what was then the biggest hotel in Costa Rica. So I do remember playing in the, uh, you know, in the laundry facilities and, you know, uh, the pool and behind the front desk. And, you know, wanting to study biochemistry, I was a big nerd. So I, I figured, you know, I could do hospitality real estate where you get to understand the science behind the P&L and what food and beverage means and rooms means and, you know, all the other hotel departments and you boil it down to numbers, which is mm-hmm. what we do. We do hotel investing. Mm-hmm. So it boils down to numbers and you started your career at Pricewaterhouse. So talk about why Pricewaterhouse, what you did there and how was that experience as... How, how was that experience? Uh, fascinating job. I think probably the best job anybody can get out of school is consulting. It's knowledge work. You have to put your thoughts on paper and you got to substantiate it with facts. So I, um, I went to PwC in Miami. We covered the Caribbean and Latin America. So I did the, uh, you know, my favorite project was doing the feasibility study of the four seasons in Costa Rica. So talk about bringing it home. Absolutely. And then doing quite a bit of product uh, of projects in the Caribbean where information uh, was not as uh, readily available as it is now, you know, so we do, did have to rely on primary data gathering. And that meant interviewing a lot of people from, um, you know, tourism ministries to hotel owners to hotel operators. Um, so it was, uh, it was very nice to be out there in the field and also to, island hopping in the Caribbean and in very exotic destinations in Latin America. So it was, it was very interesting, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, whilst it was focused on a very big global region, it wasn't global enough one. And two, I really wanted to get more into hotel investment. So brokerage, um, I was introduced to it um, by my mentor, uh, Professor Dan Kwan at, at Cornell. He's, superb and you know he definitely helped me develop my passion for hotel real estate finance and investment Mm -hmm. and so he introduced me to jll and the rest is history so Mm -hmm. i started there started here as an analyst and you know i pinch myself when i realized i'm the ceo of the company now (laughs) and and talk about the jump over from consulting to the brokerage and transactional world it's uh, it's maybe the way people are paid, commission structure scares a lot of people who move over to that, particularly someone who's had some, you know, the great experiences that you had already. Um, yeah, I have to tell you, you know, I've, I've never been a, uh, a focus on that. I think that's a byproduct. If you're the best at what you do, obviously you'll get compensated very handsomely. But at the end of the day, um, I think the path of starting in consulting is, is, is a great one. You develop an, an excellent basis of knowledge and analytical skills and just framing your, your train of thought. And then as it relates to brokerage, um, you know, you also switch in another very specific skill set, which is the art of making deals, managing the rela- managing relationships 
and, you know, connecting people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in consulting, you can get quite lonely because you're, you know, obviously you're uh, drafting reports and doing analysis. So it's, uh, you can keep to yourself once you've done your field work. And in brokerage, it's all about connecting people and, and making sure that we're finding solutions for our clients. So if you have both, I think it makes you a very well-rounded professional. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you came to brokerage mature in knowledge of the industry instead of learning it as a salesperson. I think they're two very different things. I think you're right. And if you look at our employee base, I mean, most of us went to hotel school. We either have some sort of uh, a personal connection to hospitality. So maybe there's a little bit of a a deeper knowledge of our industry before we turn into brokerage. Um, And because hotels are so specific, you know, very seldom do we get another uh, commercial real estate broker entering into hotels. It, it rarely happens, at least in our group. It, we're really hotelies by background. Yeah, I could tell. Okay, so talk about your pathway through the business. You start as an analyst, but talk about your growth and the roles that you had leading up to what you're doing now. You know, I've gone through two cycles, which have been uh, extremely uh, interesting and great learning experiences. So I started in our Miami office. I was there for a year. Uh, we were, I was definitely using all the knowledge that I gathered at PwC as it relates to Caribbean and Latin America and Florida. Slowly, the business picked up. And within a year, I moved over to, to New York. That was the time when, you know, we were in, in growth mode and a lot of Middle Eastern investors were acquiring property in, in New York City. So, you know, I kind of jumped on that bandwagon. Uh, I made a lot of trips between the U.S. and the Gulf at that time, given mm-hmm. that they were embarking on a little bit of a shopping spree in New York. Soon afterwards, I was offered the opportunity to move to our global headquarters, which uh, back then were in London for hotels. Mm-hmm. And I worked with the same client base. You know, the guys that were buying in New York were the same guys that were buying in London and Paris, uh, Hong Kong. And so that skill set transferred very well. It was the same clients. It was a different market. And, and London was, was fascinating. I was there for a year. And then the crisis hit. And at that time, I was also given the opportunity to move down to Spain to do uh, debt advisory. We had created a, a new business line when I was in London. And, you know, it's a debt advisory platform with debt covering uh, Italy, Spain, UK, Germany. Uh, and France. And the day I moved to Madrid was the day Lehman Brothers crashed. So September 15th, 2008, that was the breaking news on my phone. (laughs) Uh, You know, you quickly picked up that maybe the business plan that we had laid out was potentially going to change, and it did. And I was in Madrid for two years. Uh, We were there to do financing, and we ended up quickly pivoting and saying, well, uh, maybe it does make sense for us to offer advisory services to the bank, which are going to be getting a lot of keys and hotel keys, that is, and have to work out receivership. So we, we transformed ourselves and created a new business line called Business Recovery Services. I remember that was really fun. And because business was quiet, I figured that was the perfect time to go get an executive MBA. So my then boyfriend, now husband, and that was a really great experience. And after that, you know, things started to pick up in, in New York. And I got a phone call uh, about nine years ago saying, Hinda, you know, things are busy. Uh, we need you back. 
just looked at each other. I looked at my husband and we said, let's go. <laughs> and so when I came back to New York, you know, with all the skill set on the global experience, we decided to create the Global Hotel Desk, which is now one of our, I would say, instrumental and one of the biggest uh, business lines that we have. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so you're in New York, you have your MBA, you're married now, I think, and you're creating the Global Hotel Desk. Yes. And at the beginning, I, I must admit, it was the best excuse for me to work with my friends around the world, my colleagues around the world. And so we all said, why not create a global team so that we can all work together and uh, use their skill set? So we pitched it, the boss liked it, and the rest is history. Yeah. Just curious. So what does the global hotel desk mean then and now? And you're doing investment sales of hotels. You're Chief clients are the acquirers. They're not, I always think of the hotel business, your client's got to be the, the brand, but it's not, or the flag, but it's the acquirers of hotels. The investors. The investors. Mm-hmm. And what's what clientele do you deal with at the global desk versus that which your team around the world deals with? How does that, what's the differential between that? Uh, absolutely. So we all work together. Um, and, and in essence, uh, the, the job of the global desk is we're really ambassadors to investors that invest worldwide. And so what we do is we make sure that we run the international marketing of any high profile deal and the local teams, which have the local knowledge, obviously, they will run the domestic marketing. An example of that will be uh, this St. Regis, San Francisco, which we sold a, a, a couple of years ago, we worked in tandem with the, the local California-based team. The local team obviously has all the local knowledge of the San Francisco market. They managed the domestic marketing campaign, so they approached only U.S.-based investors. And my team, the Global Desk, we ran the international marketing campaign. At the end of the day, the buyer was an international and offshore investor. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we really, we cross continents. That's what we do. And we ensure consistency in our service and in our product and in our approach, right? Cultural nuances are critical. Mm-hmm. Our job is to make sure that we have, that we globally connect our clients to our local team. Absolutely. And if you don't have that kind of consistency, then those global investors can't use your team on a consistent basis around the world. There's no baseline of comparison. One interesting thing about the hotel business, and and at our firm, we do a lot in the apartment business, we do a lot in the office business. The percentage of hotels that are iconic or that people know, I smile when you said the St. Regis of San Francisco, because of course I know the building. In like the apartment building, in the apartment business, there's some dozen apartments in the world that people know and smile if you say the name. I could only, but I may only think about the Dakota. But if you think about the hospitality business, I could think of dozens. They, you immediately have an emotional attachment to knowing those properties. And maybe that's also what brings in those kind of international investors. You're exactly right. It's all about emotion. And, you know, a lot of these hotels are extremely iconic and landmarks, right? You know, from global dignitaries to go there to a place where one may celebrate their wedding or just had a really phenomenal vacation. Hotels are very special. They're homes away from home. 
that's what they are. It's really interesting because I've been in a lot of office buildings because I've had a meeting in your building. But I don't have that attachment that I had a couple of drinks in your bar and slept in one of the rooms for a few nights and explored a city while I was there or did business while I was there. So you immediately do have a different kind of attachment, memory, and feeling about your kind of property. Absolutely. And listen, some of our some of these hotels that we that we work with around the world, they're they're truly pieces of art. Mm-hmm. Right. So even the uh, the investment pieces may be a little bit different. Now some investors are gonna look at our hotels and say, This is great, it means my fund requirements, value add, et cetera. Right. Some will say, I'm gonna buy this for the three generations to come. Mm-hmm. Right. And I will never sell this asset and they will buy it like they do art. Right. It's interesting. Uh, one of the first podcasts in the series was with a gentleman named Steve Wilson, who created and runs the 21C Hotel brand and their museum right. hotels, yeah. which has art. <laughs> the buildings may or may not be art, but art's the theme of, of those properties. So just a funny connection. Absolutely. So back to your career. So you start the Global Hotel Desk and kind of Bring us to the current date in terms of your role. Um, listen, I, I am a, a product of JLL. So what I love about this company is that, you know, obviously we're very institutional in nature. We, we carry a tremendous uh, brand name. Uh, but at the same time, hotels, we're very entrepreneurial. And what I really loved about my, my time here is, one, as I said, I've worked in, in many an office. Two, I've worn several hats. And, and three, I've had the opportunity to create uh, two business lines out of, out of nowhere. And I think it was that skill set of one, connecting people, you know, really, literally growing up in the company that made leadership a, a very big ambition of mine. And so I am very blessed. I have great sponsors and mentors at JLL that looked out for me and, and trained me and um, you know, giving me all these opportunities. And I guess that I was very lucky to be selected to, to, and groomed to, to lead the business in the America. So it was a natural transition. It was something I always wanted. There you go. It was a dream coming true. And it was something that didn't just happen. I really worked hard at uh-huh. it, at getting it. It was my ambition. Of the hard thing that you had to do, what was the most unnatural or the hardest part of growing? growing to be ready for that you know if you really love something you're gonna put in the hours and it's hard work and you know every time you you trip you take it as a learning lesson and 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 you move on so I don't know that there's been anything that is hard I think the the biggest thing has been the time commitment you know everybody always asks you know how do you do your work-life balance you travel like crazy and you know, there's no work-life balance. Mine is a work-life blend, right? Mm-hmm. I, there's no distinction. I absolutely love what I do. And, you know, I'm very blessed in that my husband also travels quite a bit. So <laughs> we, we are able to meet in, in very nice parts of the world. And um, I think, you know, just going back to your question, the hardest thing has been just the, your time commitment. But I, you know, I, I loved every single second of it, and I don't regret it. There's no opportunity cost in my mind. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me ask a personal question. I may, maybe shouldn't, but do you have kids? I do not have kids yet. 
I, so I heard the word yet. And so if you do have kids, how does that change the rhythm in this? And I'd ask the same question to a man as I'm asking to you as a woman. Absolutely. Um, I don't think it does. It's just how you organize yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I opened up the, we opened up the conversation talking about my upbringing. Uh, you know, I've always, I, I've traveled my entire life. I think uh, my mother was telling me my first trip I took at three months of age. Uh, and it was a cross-Atlantic uh, flight, which was very unpleasant for her, by the way. But mm-hmm. um, having said that, kids get used to it. Right. But um, where there's a will, there's a way. So I love kids, and I live vicariously through, you know, my, my siblings right now with wonderful nieces and nephews. And I can't wait to have, you know, a little Hinda or, or a little Felipe traveling with me and, and seeing what I do. Okay. I love it. Okay. So the hospitality business always changes, but it's changed a lot in the last years, maybe more than any other sector. And I'm not a hotel person, but let me kind of think of a couple of trends and you can double down on them or add. So one is I think of huge companies with multiple flags. They've doubled, you know, Marriott got huger, huger. So trend number one, trend number two, boutique hotels and customers are looking for a crafted experience. Maybe that contradicts the first trend a little bit. Uh, technology has totally changed and it has also increased the bar on customer service, although maybe technology doesn't equal customer service, but think about that. And, and it is a more global business, which we've talked about. Talk about those trends, talk about how they fit together. And also I'm missing some things. The common thread behind everything that you've said is connectivity, right? And so if you look at what technology has done, you know, the fourth major uh, revolution is connecting people and the availability to connect and give you information in real time. So what that does to the hotel industry, it's all, you know, there's reputation matters, customer reviews, you can read them real time, you know, um, great piece of service or a great experience will be published, a bad experience will be published as well. So it's just making things a little bit more transparent. But again, nothing that is unusual to hotels because hotels are homes away from home. It gets very intimate in a hotel, right? Right. Um, number two, as it relates to the pro- uh, proliferation of brands with the major players, hotels has historically been one of the most fragmented uh, industries in the world. There's a lot of players, a lot of brands, et cetera. If you look at food companies, um, consumer goods, heavy in- industrial engineering, I mean, these are very big companies that have a very big piece of market share. Mm-hmm. Hotels were just starting uh, to see the tip of the iceberg. But what is nice about it is that they want to uh, not just control your share of wallet, but it's giving you the whole experience. So nothing different than what Google or Amazon does uh, with you as a consumer, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I'm loyal to Marriott or Apple or IHG, you know, whatever uh, brand of choice you frequent, what's very nice is that they're giving you all of these choices. So I can use one of the big hotel companies for my work travel. Um, I can use them for my vacation. I can maybe go have dinner or drink at a nice hotel lounge and they will know everything there is to know about me. And for me, that is not scary. I think that's actually great because then they can provide customized service and they know exactly what I like and what I don't like, right? Mm -hmm. And so it all boils down to connections and we're making connections much shorter. Mm -hmm. That's all. 
Totally true. So put together what you just described with the opposite trends, which might be boutique hotels that are not a, on a brand, not on a flag, and also think about Airbnb. And I travel a fair amount, and almost half the time now I'm doing boutique or even Airbnb, which is ultra boutique, uh, versus it's at a big flag. Right. So as it relates to boutique, again, um, you know, that can mean many, many things in hotel. I will uh, take the question of it meaning a, uh, you know, an unbranded independent hotel that is very focused on, on, on its local market. And so whether it's, what they're trying to do is to give you a very unique, highly curated experience. Right? Mm-hmm. You're going back to experience. Experience. You want to experience something special, something particular about that destination, and that's why you're staying at that uh, boutique hotel. Now, if you look at what the the big hotel companies are doing, is that they're also offering very uh, highly unique, customized boutique hotel experiences. So you yeah. may be staying at a hotel that is quite authentic. Um, but at the end of the day, you're getting points for staying there because they happen to be affiliated with Marriott. Or exactly. Uh-huh. Um, so I think we're going to see more and more of, of that happening uh, as people are looking for unique experiences. But, you know, standard, um, let's call it a common, lowest common denominator, minimum standard of quality. So that's what a brand will give you. Um, as it relates to Airbnb, I think that is, residential uh, doing a play on, on what we do at hospitality, which is experiences, which mm-hmm. is what we've been discussing. You know, you want to stay in somebody's house. Maybe it's a little bit more convenient. Maybe you get a little bit more space. But, you know, the latest Airbnb marketing material and advertisements that I've heard, it's all about living like a local because you want to experience, have a, a more ingrained experience of what it means uh, to stay in a particular neighborhood in Paris or in New York City. Right. And and there's less interaction, I'm going to guess, between the work that you do and that kind of stuff, because it's not institutional investors playing in that business, except at the corporate level. Yeah, but at the end of the, uh, of the day, it's all quite permeable, right? So, you know, what, what residential, what's happening in residential, what, what Airbnb is doing, Technologies, I mean, all of these have repercussions into hospitality. So, um, you know, for those of us that still have a long uh, career and ahead of us, we have to be mindful of everything that is happening around us. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it's about space. That's what real estate is, right? It's space. So one of the things I, I've learned about your practice is it's not just investment sales. There's some consulting work, and one of the words I've heard in the conversation is you have a tourism practice. And I'm asking not as an advertisement for the breadth of services at JLL, but I'm trying to think of your industry holistically and understand it better. And so if you're doing work consulting with either cities or convention bureaus or convention centers, whatever it is, around tourism. Kind of talk about that because that's the the broader picture of what each hotel means. Yeah, no, that's right. So that's, um, you know, our, our work in tourism is all about it's, it's destination work, right? And mm-hmm. um, most of the advice that we provide to a lot of the destinations is how do they make sure that they uh, become and stay competitive and relevant, right? Mm-hmm. 
and that they're offering the best uh, services and infrastructure to their consumer base. And again, everybody uh, tapping on on world travel and tourism, which is the, the fundamental uh, piece of our industry. Mm-hmm. And so it all, you know, goes together. If you look at hotels right now, I mean, it's, it's all above and beyond. It's not just the sleeping room, you know, it's about the restaurant and what type of retail do you have next door and how convenient is it to the airport and how many airlines fly there and, you know, what major hubs are there from a, a connectivity perspective for you to get to that destination and how friendly it is. So it all goes back to, um, uh, to the same value chain is just different aspects of that value chain from, you know, and, and as it relates to, to the work that we do in tourism, mm-hmm. um, we've done everything from how do we make a destination a little bit more competitive? How, you know, what is required for, what are the critical factors of success, right? right. Uh, what's the unique selling point for that specific destination? And most importantly, as it relates to real estate, which is what we're talking about today, is what infrastructure and services do you offer? Right. to make that destination competitive. Hey, let me ask you a question about destination being competitive. So in the city, it's one thing. In a uh, somewhere like the Caribbean, it's a very different meaning. And so question, and you've probably seen this through the life cycle of your career, you take an island in the Caribbean, uh, and I went to Anguilla before anything got developed there, and it was really neat. I haven't been there since it became a tourist destination. How do you help, like an island, since you did this in the Caribbean, uh, improve itself but not ruin itself? And what's the tipping point of that? And is there a pathway of guidance that allows the the right success there? I think you've just hit the biggest, uh, I hit on the biggest challenge there is. The moment you put something really on the grid mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, that it's great for business, et cetera, but it's where you have to be really careful that you don't lose its charm, mm-hmm. right? And that, that's one of the biggest pet peeves I have when I travel abroad. You know, I want to go and buy something unique in retail, and all I find are, you know, the, the Zara's, the Sephora's, the H&M's, which are very nice and very convenient. It could be but anywhere. It, it, it looks the same everywhere, right? Right. And, and so it's, it's how you make the destination accessible and convenient without it losing what makes it special. And it's a fine balance. It really is a fine balance. Um, so, you know, for a destination in the Caribbean or any island, I guess, to be successful, it's all about airlift. So you, you want to, you know, when we're, we're doing studies, we analyze the airlift and what's happening with airports and airlines and who's flying there and how do you get there and how easy is it to get there and, and the travel time, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. You also look at hotels. But I think hotels have figured out that, you know, when people travel, they don't want everything to look the same all the time. Especially when it has to do with leisure travel, you want unique experiences. Maybe when you're doing your corporate travel, you want, you know, certain standards and repetition. But it's it's striking the right balance to keep things fresh and to make you wanting wanting to come back for more. Mm -hmm. It's got to be a humongous challenge now because places... The, the speed at which people discover the next spot 
and then flock there within six months has it's never happened that way before. And those places aren't ready, and then when they become ready for that much travel, they do become ruined. There'll be some authenticity over time, and but then maybe that authenticity becomes a caricature over time. That's exactly right. And so it's how you strike that fine balance. <laughs> we'll have another conversation about that one. So hospitality, <laughs> hospitality is the is famously the most cyclical of all the real estate asset classes. Maybe it's changing as other asset classes get shorter term in terms of leases and focus. But talk about how resilient the industry may be going into the next cycle. I think it's more resilient than it's ever been because we've had more competition, right? So it's made us um, be a little bit more at the forefront of, of innovation and new concepts and you know, you've seen a little bit more consolidation. It gives a lot of these big companies more leverage, which is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, we are definitely the most cyclical because we're almost, you know, entirely correlated to, to GDP. Having said that, however, you know, we we, we are facing, I think, a, a pretty optimistic future. Investor confidence is at an all-time high. Uh, from a macroeconomic perspective, things are, are very healthy. Uh, we're still growing, maybe not as fast as we were growing a year or two ago, but it's still growth nonetheless. And and it's you know the the way I look at it is you got to look at it long term. And sometimes we do need a pause, and the pause will allow for those you know great companies to get even greater. And for those companies that maybe are struggling, it will force them to, to decide on which path to take. Maybe they call it quits mm-hmm. or they have to come up with a better idea so that they can remain competitive. So I think corrections are necessary. And, you know, it's something that we mustn't look at a, a great challenge, but a, a you know, great opportunity for you to innovate. And that's what happens. You know, look at how things have changed from this cycle to last cycle. And, you know, it's not decades ago, it's just a few years ago. Right. And, and you know, technology now plays a, a, a technology and how connected everything is and intertwined plays a huge role in, in the longevity of this cycle and how things are going to look in the next cycle. And only time will tell. Time will tell, but it's not something that, that I'm afraid of. I think... Hotel companies have done a, a great job um, in terms of innovating and investing in the right places. And if the slowdown comes in, it'll be a, a good time for some of these companies to course correct and improve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we just talked about the cycle. Another question about this is, as travel becomes easier, more people want to do it, more people do do it. The economic cycle is one thing. The second cycle is maybe the threat cycle, the threat cycle of the scariness of people knowing data on us, or it may be the scariness of the next airplane crash or the scariness of the next terrorist act in a place that we don't expect it. Um, Any comments about the maybe clash of it's all one world and it's a global world, it's global economy and global capital flows with some pushback against that being the reality. Yeah, I think if if we kept demand constant mm-hmm. and you know, that we would see no growth 
in terms of the, the consumer base of the traveler base, and I would be very concerned. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that there's so many worldwide economies where you have a booming and a growing middle class. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, wealth creation and some very fast growing nations from a demographics perspective, whether it's China, Latin America, India, your demand base or traveler pool is growing by the second. Absolutely. And so I think that that's a unique uh, virtue of the, the travel and tourism industry. Consumers don't stay the same. They don't look the same. We're also going through major demographic transitions with, you know, baby boomers having a little bit more disposable time and disposable income Mm -hmm. where they want to go travel and experience. You have a very curious millennial class as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you got the next generation who literally were born (laughs) with technology and, you know, they, they even have a, a, a different world, which is a virtual world, which right. did not exist, I guess, when we were growing up. So things are evolving so rapidly and there's more and more people traveling, you know, and more wealth being created that I don't see it being an issue mm-hmm. at all. Um, obviously, listen, we always have setbacks and very unfortunate events happen. Um, you know, from this morning's horrible uh, terrorist attack oh in in, right. in New Zealand to, you know, things that happen elsewhere, conflict, etc. And you know, these are, are are terrible, terrible situations that happen. But the world still travels, and you know, whether you have to travel for work, you have to travel to, to go see a family member, or you want to travel because you want to go experience a new place as part of your vacation, that is not stopping. No, it's interesting. And as people do have enough resources to do it, the first thing they want to do with their kids or their family or themselves or their spouse or their honeymoon is they want to see someplace new. It's an right. essential part of the human gene. Absolutely. It's all about curiosity, you know. Yeah. And, and then on the flip side, uh, 10 years ago, I don't know that the, world sta- uh, the word staycation existed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you don't even have to travel. You can just walk down the block and stay at a hotel if you want to do a staycation over the weekend. So, again, it's all about experience in space. Uh, totally true. It's interesting. This is off our subject, but I read something about how Netflix has created globalization because Netflix is taking three, four, five TV shows from every country around the world and putting it on and then having it in every language. And if you're curating the best of those shows, then people get to travel the world every night when they watch their hour of TV. I know I do. And it, I do for sure. I love it. I think it's brilliant. And then you want to go see that place because you're already intimate with it. That's exactly right. Yeah. And now in your hotel room, you can stream your Netflix. So <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. It is. Okay. A couple more questions. Uh, talk about being a female leader in the business. I'm curious about it within a big giant firm like JLL. I'm curious about it within the hospitality industry versus the rest of commercial real estate, which is traditionally male-dominated, changing, but changing slowly. What's that been like for you? It's been wonderful. And I tell you why, you become more memorable. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you how many meetings I've been where I'm like, you know, one out of 20 or one out of 10. And the good thing is that people remember you much better than the rest. (laughs) But um, listen, all joking aside, everybody that I work with has been extremely kind and polite and respectful. 
Uh, being a woman, I think, gives you a little bit of a different perspective. I do think we think differently. We're wired differently. So gives you a different skill set. You can, you know, problem solve, I guess, through another angle. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, we do have the common denominator, which is we all want to win, <laughs> right? So all of my colleagues and my clients and the people that I work with, we all have that common goal. So I don't think, you know, I've never really been so focused on my gender, but it's something that it's been, you know, it's worked out extremely, extremely well. The other thing I have to tell you when, you know, we go to meetings, people relax a little bit more Mm -hmm. and (laughs) they're a little bit kinder. So they're not on flight or fight mode when we're having some of these meetings. And, you know, that's worked out pretty well as well. So maybe a secret weapon. There you go. I totally agree with that. It, it's interesting in in my world as a recruiter, I do what you do. I talk to people all day long, and I have different kind of relationship with people. And I I guess there's two ways to do it. One way to do it is to intimidate, and be tough, and you know demand answers to questions. And the other is just to find someone and relax as far as you can with them. And when you relax with them, then relationships established and truth comes out. Yeah, plus we have a lot to talk about too. You know, people open up a little bit more. We we talk about their families. I'm mm-hmm. always very curious. I'm always asking questions. So mm-hmm. I found that it's very easy to establish direct personal relationships. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I'm a woman or because I've lived in many places and therefore you have to ask a lot of questions to, to assimilate. <laughs> yeah, well, I, that's, I think that's a mark of leadership actually is asking questions, being curious and wondering versus having all the answers. I agree with that. So my last question always is if you were giving advice to a young person entering either the real estate business generally or the hospitality business, uh, what would that be about their upcoming careers? I would say do something that you love. That's the best. You know, you, you, you have to find your passion. And when you find your passion, you'll always be your best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said at the beginning, for me, every day, it's, it's like a game. I feel like I'm playing. Uh, I'm living a dream. I love what I do. And, and and when you look at all these people who are great, whether it's in, you know, in, in my field of work or athletes or artists, it's because they truly love what they do. And they do it all the time. They do it consistently. They put in the hours. They put in the effort until they perfect it. Mm-hmm. And what's really funny about that is that, you know, you, you never perfect it. So you just keep on doing it and you just get better. Right. Absolutely true. Well, if you do what you love, then it's not that pejorative word work, which is to me a, not a pejorative word, but you hear it too often in popular culture. And it is what That's you right. love and you want to do it all day long. It's your craft. Yeah. That's right. You got it. Hilda, thank you very much. It's been a wonderful conversation, lots of lessons learned, and um, you do great stuff. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. Thank you. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients. Whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com voices. 